Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some films of the connexploitation subgenre, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Retention, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about 1981's My Bloody Valentine, but before that, I need to not course correct, I need to correct myself, actually, if there are any listeners of I Do Movies Badly who also listen to Battleship Retention and thus listened to my recent appearance on Battleship Retention talking about um, old movies, new technology, was the title that they they uh, they gave for it, um, I brought up um, a an example of a film that was um, shot in Spain, and was trying to pretend as though it was taking place in New England, um, and I referenced that as Stuart Gordon's Dagon. That was incorrect. A listener uh, pointed that out to me in the comments field. It was not actually Dagon. It was <laughs> Brian Yuzna's Beyond Reanimator, the third film in the Reanimator sequel or sequence or series, whatever the hell you want to call it, um, in which Yuzna did shoot it in Spain. Um, it is very clearly Spain be, uh, due to the automobiles, the architecture, the um, extras, and uh, some of the cast members, and yet we are trying to believe, or the film would have us believe, that this is actually um, in, uh, if not Arkham specifically, then someplace in New England when it is very clearly not. Um, so thank you for pointing that out. That was my mistake. Um, it was beyond reanimator, not Dagon. So now that everything is right with the world, uh, because I have balanced uh, or tipped the scales back into balance, I can talk about My Bloody Valentine, which, um, full disclosure, was a film that um, I don't think was bad, but I also don't think was memorable or noteworthy in really any way, shape, or form. Um, I say this having reviewed My my Black Christmas, is what I uh, was about to just say and then just actually said. Um, I say this having reviewed Black Christmas last week, which was um, a trailblazer f uh, of a film, um, was a four uh, a forerunner uh, in many regards. It was technically admirable. Um, there was a lot of interesting directorial choices by Bob Clark, uh, specifically with his use of sound and music to um, enhance the tone and the mood of the film. And there was something subversive about setting a horror film, a slasher film, uh, around the Christmas holiday season that really kind of enhanced this the sense of dread and cruelty, basically. Um, My Bloody Valentine um, instead feels sort of like a tired imitator or um, feels like um, trying to cash in on a gimmick, on something that was superficial rather than really kind of um, something which was inspired by Black Christmas. Um, just something that kind of uh, took what they saw worked on the surface and didn't really understand what made the film so, uh, what made the original Black Christmas so effective to begin with. And now, in a way, in a a, a societal context, in a cultural context, I guess you can say, this sort of makes sense because um, this being a, a film that, that was um, part of the exploitation subgenre in Canada, this was seven years after... 
Black Christmas. It was quite a a, a lengthy time uh, for filmmakers to make to, to be pumping out those imitators to be trying to capitalize on the success of of, of this this trailblazing. Um, path paving film basically and we saw this happen in the united states as well my bloody valentine was actually once you know was brought over to to the united states to try and capitalize on the the slasher genre movement um and yet we saw here even in our history that there was a an eventual saturation that was inspired by halloween and friday the 13th there were a lot of imitators here as well and um eventually kind of getting to a point where um it's not the official end of it but April Fool's Day is kind of pointed to as one of the the last theatrically released uh, slashers, with the exception of the, uh, the the various sequels in the Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, uh, Friday the Thirteenth series. Um, April Fool's Day being one of the last original ones um, that kind of showed the market was saturated, that there was uh, an exhaustion with the genre, that films uh, of the slasher genre were really just kind of imitating what came before them and there was not a whole lot that was original or um it's particularly inspired um by them so this idea of a of a of fatigue and a market saturation is a real thing and um i know that my bloody valentine when it was released here was heavily cut due to um concerns about censorship specifically in the wake of john lennon's murder so there was something like nine six or nine minutes of, of uh, violence and, and other scenes cut from My Bloody Valentine, um, which has since been, uh, some of it has since been restored on, um, I believe it's the Shout Factory um, Blu-ray and DVD release. Uh, uh, don't quote me on that one. But on, on a, a recent um, home video re-release, uh, some of that stuff has been restored. And so some people, I think, could maybe um, raise the complaint that, well, it was the fact that it was so heavily cut that it didn't leave more of a box office impression or it didn't leave more of a cultural impression at the time. Um, I disagree. I think it's the fact that, now I, I say this aware of the fact that it has since kind of been revisited as a cult classic, if you will, or a guilty pleasure. I don't understand any of those things because I think that, once again, this isn't a bad movie, but this isn't an exemplary movie either. Um, there was, like I said, uh, uh, something subversive about setting a horror film around the Christmas holiday season in the 1970s, and at first blush, it seems like that subversion continues by setting a film on Valentine's Day. I mean, it is a holiday where, of course, it's all about love and affection and romance and that kind of thing, so how subversive could it be if we made a film which was uh, instead focusing on blood and on murder and on death and destruction instead of togetherness and romance, we instead have um, mayhem and, and death, basically. But um, Black Christmas, I think, wasn't just subversive, but it was actually kind of transgressive in what it did by setting a, a horror film on around that holiday season once again um whereas my bloody valentine i think is just kind of a vehicle to deliver kills with a gimmick and that gimmick being a holiday um now admittedly my opinion on this and specifically the the transgressive nature of black christmas comes from a an admittedly judeo-christian view of the christmas holiday season and and, and what what uh specifically the religion that I follow, what ha that has made Christmas into or, or where, um, you know, or, or where its roots stem from, basically, at least when it comes to uh, 
celebrating on December and a lot of the iconography and um and um music and things that have have uh, have sprung up around that specific time of the year. Um, and also, I believe that Valentine's Day is just kind of a bull, uh, a bullshit Hallmark holiday, really. So um, there was something, in my opinion, that was transgressive about Black Christmas because of how the roots of it as a holiday come from that idea of joy and peace and uh, from a theological perspective of reconciling spiritually the the world to um something bigger than it this idea of redemption for the world and 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 even on a superficial level even if you take away any theological implications of the season even if you don't believe in anything spiritual uh, spiritually that's fine because the christmas holiday season has also still come to stand for this idea of as i said in the last episode togetherness of family of a return to home and wholeness and a system and a structure basically which was denied of uh all of our characters in black christmas because of this psychotic killer because of these murders there was a wholeness and a return that was denied to our characters there was this idea of a an emotional release or a return to an emotional um normalcy that was forever denied to our characters because of these murders um now valentine's day being a bullshit hallmark holiday is not really rooted in anything which can support such emotional maturity which we kind of do see in christmas movies in the christmas holiday season and that kind of a thing um and 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 i think even just superficially i mean if you remove the town of valentine bluff if you set this in the town of you know moose jaw I don't know why it came up with that. It's just a random Canadian town that I thought of. Moose Jaw or Medicine Hat. Um, these are all real towns in Canada, by the way. Um, and then if you remove kind of the delivery of, of actual physical hearts um, as this kind of this taunting and this foreboding omen of what is to come, then really all we have is a slasher set in a small mining town. Um, and in fact, that actually kind of becomes a more interesting film, in my mind, if there is themes instead directing the energies of this movie towards um a skepticism or a real distrust in authority um or uh on this idea that the industry is more important than the people who are a part of it those ideas are more interesting to me um supplemented by the fact that the killer in this one and I'll get to that in a little bit, but at least the iconography of the killer, this masked um, anonymous miner, um, is a really haunting image. There was real potential here for this film to, I think, be something which was kind of interesting. But instead, as I said, this is kind of just a delivery for kills, basically, and not even in a fairly interesting way. Now, admittedly, I watched the version which was cut, so a lot of the gore um, was not available to me. I could tell this because of the scene in which a woman is impaled uh, on a, I think it's a pipe in the shower, was uh, not in my viewing. I believe that is one of the scenes that was restored uh, in the the the, the uh, recent re-release, somewhat recent re-release on, on, on Blu-ray and DVD. This came out a few years ago. Um, but it's not even the fact that I, that it, it's lacking inventive kills. It's just 
it, it feels like a film which is checking um, boxes off, basically, as to, yep, we've got to have, you know, small town. We've got to have a certain contingency of young people killed. We've got to have a, you know, kind of a, a um, useless authority figure. And then we've got to have um, a really haunting killer, which is at the heart of it. But there is nothing thematically about setting a film on Valentine's Day or at least there was nothing uh, thematically interesting about this film being set on Valentine's Day that I think really subverts anything or transgresses anything, really. It's just kind of, like I said, uh, you know, almost like a, a writer was sort of thinking, like, okay, we've got, we got a movie set on Christmas, we got a movie set on Halloween, we got a movie set on prom night, we got a movie set on birthdays, we got a movie set on Mother's Day. What's, what's, what's still like, you know what? valentine's day like it just kind of seemed like the the cart came before the horse basically and then the horse that ultimately ended up pulling it was just kind of this weak frail little thing that couldn't complete the entire journey um i i i don't believe that this film as i said it was necessarily hampered by cultural context by what happened with uh censorship due to do the the murder of john lennon or or even the fact that um it was lost in the shuffle a bunch of amongst a saturation or fatigue with a horror or slasher genre, I think what actually hampers this film is it just kind of goes through the motions of what a slasher film is supposed to do, which, to be clear, is not a um, a sin unique to this movie. This is the case for many slasher films, including some of the ones that I just mentioned or some of the ones uh, the, on which were set on holidays that I or, or special days that I just mentioned. Um, but I, I think it just kind of goes through the motions of what a slasher film is supposed to do and severely undercutting any emotional resonance, resonance or emotional power is the identity of who the killer is. Now, as I said, there was some potential here that I really thought, um, specifically potential in, in kind of a, having an interesting whodunit considering two primary factors um one we have this town where there's this local legend of harry warden this uh miner who is the only survivor of a mine accident that uh that was overlooked by the town um and so he he was he was basically driven insane and you know every year he had this valentine's day rampage which was basically to um on one hand sort of enact vengeance against people involved in the industry involved with the people that um uh that 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 contributed to the death of his fellow miners and his fellow workers so there's almost this idea of sort of a, a, a um retribution against the system um that is an interesting idea and yet the killers or, or, or the killings which are happening in this iteration of 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 the massacre in Valentine's Bluff don't seem to fit his M.O. It seems to be random, unmotivated killings. I mean, we have Madame Mabel and her laundromat is, is murdered for some reason. We have a, a <laughs> the typical kind of slasher fodder blonde woman at the very beginning who's murdered for some reason. There, there seemed to be no motivation behind these killings. And I think that can contribute to the whodunit because you kind of it doesn't seem to support this legend of Harry Warden coming back. Like, you know, Harry Warden should be attacking the police officers or the miners, you know, but instead it's these seemingly random people being killed. So it, it raises this mystery of, like, who could this person be and what could their motivations be? The other potential factor leading to 
or, or I should say the other factor leading to a potential interesting whodunit is also that tension exists among some of the characters already. Specifically, we have TJ and Axel. TJ, who went off to the West Coast for some reason, and, you know, once he was gone, his girl Sarah kind of navigated to Axel, so now TJ is back, and oops, they both have eyes for the same girl, but are also both kind of at odds at each other because they both want the same thing. And so setting up this idea of tension between the two of them also sets up this idea that both of them sort of have some motivation for, if not killing, then at least for being angry. Um, you know, TJ is angry at Axel. Axel is angry at TJ. They, they have these two guys where they, they can't necessarily uh, enact uh, some some rage at each other, but they because they have this rage, they are punishing the people who are around them who maybe they feel have not assisted them in what they want to do. You know, TJ might have a sense of entitlement and Axel might have a sense of entitlement. Um, and just there's still, there is at least this, it, it's a very loose thing, but at least there's this general idea that because this tension exists, then we have characters and we have us as the audience kind of looking at the both of them as, could they be the killer? Could this be the one, you know, one of two guys who can't exactly get what they want? So they're, enacting some retribution on the people who are around them. Um, or maybe, you know, who knows? It, or maybe it could have even been Howard. Howard is a guy that everyone is kind of thinking is the one pulling all these pranks on people. So maybe Howard wants to pull the ultimate prank by murdering people. Or um, maybe it's a... I don't know. But, but there's just this idea that... Um, once again, reiterating this idea that there is the potential there for an interesting whodunit. However, that turns out to not be the case for, a, you know, primarily because, one, we learn the identity of the killer. It's Axel. And now I'll get to why I have complaints about that in a little bit, but first I want to talk about how the film makes what I think to be an incredibly dumb move by revealing to us, after we have found out that the killer is actually Axel, that the, the police officer reveals, like, Harry Warden died five years ago. Yeah, no shit, buddy. We knew it wasn't Harry Warden because we just found out that it was Axel. But aside from that, as I said, the killings don't seem to fit Harry Warden's M.O. And so it would seem so easy and so um, by the book for it to be Harry Warden. So we were already as an audience kind of believing or coming around to the belief like, yeah, this probably isn't Harry Warden. It would be too obvious if it was Harry Warden. Now, if sometime around the end of Act 2, or sometime even maybe in the middle of the film, we, we got the revelation, like, Harry Warden died five years ago. Then it enhances this idea of, shit, who could it be then? Now everyone is a suspect. But instead, the film is leading us down this path to have us believe that it's Harry Warden until, maybe not the very end, I... I, now, I'm shit when it comes to predicting who the killer is going to be. My wife can can uh, can attest to that. But once it was just kind of the four of them, it was Sarah, I believe it was Patty, TJ, and Axel, and they were trying to get out of the mine, and Axel fell down into that 60-foot uh, deep water hole, whatever the hell that thing was. Then it was kind of like, ugh, okay, the killer's Axel, isn't it? And I, I spatially, I still don't believe that Axel could have done everything that he ended up doing. But, um, but... Once that happened, that was kind of the final, for many people, I'm sure, kind of the final nail in the coffin, like, okay, the killer is Axel, this is not 
Harry Warden. So that revelation from the police officer at the end that Harry Warden had been dead for five years is not a revelation at all. That needed to be, I think, an element introduced earlier in the film to increase and enhance this this question of, of tension. And who the hell could it be? We have been operating under the assumption that it's Harry Warden the whole time. Now, that could have been revealed just to the police officers, so that way the... The, the young folk who are partying in the mind don't know, we know, and once again, not once again, but getting back to this idea of the, the Hitchcock thing, which I talked about on, uh, was it the, was it during the Benson and Moorhead films, or, or the Russian, silent Russian films, anyway, or, or, anyway, but just this idea of, like, you show the audience the bomb that's about to go off, and then you show them the people who are sitting at the table, and there is tension there. You tell us that Harry Warden has been killed or was dead for five years. All of a sudden, there's tension for us, and we look at the party in a whole different way. We're looking at all the party attendees in a different way. It could be that person. It could be that person. It could be that person. But instead, once it gets to the end and we find out who the killer is, he's been dead for five years, that it falls so flat. Who cares by that point? Also, revealing or at least writing that Axel is the killer is not surprising or falls emotionally or like or, or lands an emotional blow when that happens. Um, because basically, by that point, so many of the people that we've spent a significant amount of time with, um, not just, you know, TJ and Axel, um, well, actually, removing TJ and Axel from the equation, but so many of the people who are named that we've been spending a lot of time with, such as Howard, such as Hollis, um, even these minor characters, we've seen them all killed. So the reveal of Axel is not a surprise, but it's basically just a mathematical inevitability because who else could it be at that point? We know it's not Patty. We know it's not Sarah. We are pretty sure it's not TJ. So it basically has to be Axel. So the reveal that, oh my god, it's been him the whole time, is not surprising. It doesn't land. And then also, that reveal of why he did it, that brief flashback to the fact that he was a young child when Harry Warden killed his dad and he was there to witness it and poor little guy was curled up under the bed covered in blood, um, is introduced so late, there's no real groundwork laid for that that it's an insufficient explanation. Now, I'm not saying we need to dig deep and really kind of explore the psychological roots and repercussions of witnessing something like that. I say that as someone who really hates Rob Zombie's Halloween that attempted to explain that Michael Myers killed everybody because he was a poor little kid who was picked on and didn't get to go trick-or-treating because his stepdad was a jerk. That is just as much of bullshit as this is, but in this case... They try to give us something, and it's not enough. The seeds hadn't been planted. It's not. It's neither a twist nor a reveal. It wants to be a reveal, but it certainly isn't because there hasn't been enough groundwork laid for that to be earned at the end. Instead, it's just kind of like, Axel, well, of course it was Axel. Here's why he did it. Okay, that's not enough. And it just it falls very flat, and I'm thinking back on, once again, Black Christmas from just a week ago. At the end of the film, we don't know who the killer is. We have some idea of what his motivation might be, which is thin and also not great. Sure, he's kind of mentally unwell or he's psychotic or whatever, but the fact that at the end, we don't know who the killer is and we have a 
very real possibility that he is going to continue doing what he's doing adds not just an eeriness to that film, but also kind of a sense of nihilism, which kind of makes the cruelty and the transgressive nature of that film all the more powerful. Here, we just have a bunch of young people who are getting killed by someone that the film would want us to believe is Harry Warden, but it's not. Now, I mentioned this idea of this miner um, with his mask and his pickaxe and his dark uniform. That's a powerful image that kind of haunts you a little bit, right? Especially when uh, they're filming the scenes actually down in the mine amongst like a lot of darkness, which I do think is kind of effective. Um, there's something that's interesting there. So let's say you have a film which for the first half is leading us to believe... I bet you this is Harry Warden come back for his yearly revenge thing, or not yearly, I know they hadn't had the dance for 20 years or something like that, but coming back for his Valentine's Day revenge because of uh, what we did to him. And then around Act 2, maybe you have the reveal, or, 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 you know, in the end of Act 2, you have the reveal, like, Harry Warden's been dead for five years, and then you have all of the third act, it kind of like, well, who could this asshole be? And then you get the... And then eventually you get down to it just being TJ and Axel. And then it's neither of them. Well, shit, man. Now it's kind of like you still have that that haunting, anonymous cloud hanging over people's heads. And you have this horror of this idea of we don't know why this killer was doing what he was doing. I mean, think of, you know, also Halloween. One of the things that made Michael Myers so terrifying was we didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. He was just... An inevitability, basically. He was a force. He was the shape. And that made it so terrifying. Nobody is safe, but why? Well, just because. There's an existential dread there that this film is now entirely lacking because it tried to explain too late and too ineffectively that this is the killer and this is his motivation. And I suppose someone could say... Yes, but we never actually see him die. He runs off at the end and he's singing and he's cackling and he's going to... He could potentially live to strike again, except he's also missing a fucking arm. So I'm pretty sure he's going to bleed out and die pretty quickly. So an ineffective killer revealed in an ineffective way just leads to a, a kind of a standard film, which uh, tried to kind of cash in on a gimmick. And that gimmick being, we need to set a horror film on a holiday... Which one hasn't been used yet? Well, Valentine's Day. And of course, that'll be effective because everyone loves on Valentine's Day. But on this one, everyone dies instead. It just, it doesn't work at all for me. Um, but, which, and I realize now that I've been saying this, I, I talked at the top of the episode about how I, I didn't find it terrible, but I didn't find it remarkable either. There were some things which were very effective about this film, specifically some of the cinematography, um, and specifically once everyone kind of gets into the mine. The darkness, I love how it plays into that, of just this idea of nobody has any idea what's ahead of them, what's beyond them, or, or what's behind them. Um, that scene where the two kids, uh, there's two kids who are kind of making out, and they have all those uniforms hanging from the ceiling, and they're swaying back and forth. It's eerie. And there's something, there, there's a lot of eeriness in this movie. Um, but... Outside of that, no one's really interesting. Uh, the, the potential to kind of have a film which speaks to larger ills about, about industry and a small-town mentality are kind of lost. There's not even a whole lot which dwells on 
a distrust or a skepticism of authority because of how they bungled the original Harry Warden case so much. There was potential here, and it was entirely wasted potential. Now, there are some effective moments in this film, and there's some some genuine laughs to be had amongst the rapport of, of the, the the dudes too. But there's there's not a whole lot else, and and I, I've I've read a little bit about how people are like, well, this kind of subverts a lot of genre expectations in the sense of, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a it's not the virginal one who survives to the end because by the end there really is no virginal one because the one virgin character in the film. Um, loses her virginity part way through it, or um, well, it's not a bunch of rambunctious teenagers who are young and sexually loose who are uh, the victims because well, one, they're not teenagers and there's not a whole lot of sexuality. They're actually mature twenty somethings who are working professionals, and that's all just kind of window dressing. That doesn't get to the core of anything. It's just kind of not rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but it's just kind of um, painting in a different color rather than. Um, using an entirely different um, artistic art form. That, that's a bad equivalency as well. But basically what I'm trying to say is just the the differences or the the factors or archetypes of this film that you could point to as it being um, subversive or subverting your expectations, I don't think are actually all that big of a deal. What is a big deal is that we have a mystery, uh, the result of, or, or the, the, the reveal of which is not interesting and a killer whose motivation and 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 identification has been um pretty badly bungled now it, you know there, there were some cool moments at times and i didn't think that it was terribly made in any way shape or form and some of the gore um effects specifically when it came to mrs maple popping out of the dryer or uh the the guy whose head is thrust down into boiling hot dog water is actually pretty effective i i have to believe that some of the uh kills are pretty cool i once again saw the censored version so i'm not entirely sure so the craftsmanship was probably and in many regards is notifiably there uh but the brain of it is uh sorely lacking i think um if you want to rewatch this film to disagree with me, by all means, you can do that. Um, it is free to stream if you have a membership to Stars or DirecTV. Otherwise, you can rent or buy it on um, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Fandango Now, Voodoo, the Microsoft Store, iTunes, and Redbox as well. So, um, yes, once again, if you do disagree with me, I want to hear all about your disagreements. Um, you can email me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Tweet at me at Nolan Fixes Teeth, or um, chime in in the comment field, which you are uh, probably at right now, listening to this on BattleshipRetention.com, and then dropping down in the podcast menu to go to I Do Movies Badly, or um, on I Do Movies Badly.podbean.com. But um, that does it for My Bloody Valentine. That does it for the um, horror genre films of the con exploitation genre. Unfortunately, be sure to tune in next week where I'll be wrapping up con exploitation with. Class of 1984, funnily enough, made in 1982, and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 